From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. First I got Pinky, then I got Pinky. I got Pinky and Patty in the same week. What, Vanessa catch something? Teeny Beanie Baby Ice. Now at McDonald's, your kids can get Teeny Beanie Babies and a Happy Meal. Real Thai Beanie Babies in a mini size to toss, tuck, or just plain love. One Remember the Beanie Baby craze? The stuffed animals that became all the rage in the 90s and then became collectibles. Well, surprisingly, Beanie Babies were part of the oral arguments in a federal case that's important in the SEC's mission to regulate the crypto market. Coinbase, the largest U.S. crypto exchange, is trying to get a judge to throw out the SEC's case against it, and its lawyer said that buying cryptocurrency on an exchange was more like collecting beanie babies than investing in a stock or bond. My guest is securities attorney Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. What's at stake for Coinbase here? Well, on Wednesday's oral argument in front of the federal judge in Manhattan, there's a a lot at stake in this case, particularly for Coinbase as well as the broader crypto industry. Here, the judge has to decide whether the cryptocurrencies that traded on the Coinbase platform are securities under the statutory definition and the rules that the SEC enforces or whether they come outside of that statutory framework. And it's really going to have a fundamental impact on whether crypto exchanges can operate in the United States and under what rules and how much regulation they're going to be subject to. So is the question whether crypto assets constitute an investment contract or something else? Yes. Under the statute, which was enacted in 1933, so going back a long time, there's a definition of securities, and one of the categories in the statute of what a security is is called an investment contract. And that term is designed to be almost a catch-all within the statute because it specifically says stocks and bonds, and then it says investment contracts. So the litigation that the SEC brought against Coinbase is really designed, and the judge has to decide whether the crypto assets that were trading on the Coinbase platform fell within this category called investment contracts. And Coinbase's entire argument is that on the secondary market, there really is no contract in place where purchasers of these digital assets and tokens would have some contractual right to profits from the blockchain or the company that the crypto relates to. And the SEC is arguing, well, that's too much of a specific, narrow definition, and that, generally speaking, the court should go off of what they deem to be the the expectations of the people buying these tokens and whether or not they have an expectation of profit, regardless of whether it's in the form of a written contract or not. I'm a little confused, not knowing much about crypto, but don't people who own crypto have 
the expectation that as the value of the token goes up, they'll profit from it? Yeah, and and this is an important distinction between trading that occurs on the secondary market, like that's at issue here in the Coinbase case, versus the primary sales. And Coinbase made an interesting analogy in court where it compared the the digital assets and the crypto to Beanie Babies, you know, the phenomena Mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s where, and collectibles is a broader category. And, And Coinbase's point is that there's a lot of different things that people invest in with the expectation of a profit, including Beanie Babies, including baseball cards, and not all those things are securities. So just because someone has the expectation that one day their purchase will be more valuable in the future does not convert that over to a security. And the SEC seemed to have a little bit of a problem coming back from that argument because the SEC is taking a very broad view of what constitutes security and what comes under its jurisdiction. And I think those arguments from Coinbase were really resonating with the trial judge because she was concerned that she doesn't want to overly broaden the definition of uh, security and include these things like collectibles and other things that are clearly intended to be outside the statute. I was stunned that Beanie Babies came into the conversation. It reminded me of Beanie Baby mania years ago. Was there a reason that the judge really honed in on the idea of collectibles? Was it because Coinbase brought it up, or is it a good analogy? Well, it is a good analogy, and this is one of the centerpieces of Coinbase's argument, is that the SEC is taking an overly expansive view of its own jurisdiction and over the types of instruments it has regulatory authority over. And under our system, uh, Congress has to pass a statute and delegate specific powers to the SEC of what it can and can't regulate. And Coinbase's whole argument is that you know these crypto assets are, are not covered in the statute, and therefore the SEC has no ability to regulate them until Congress chooses to amend the statute. And so Coinbase brought up the example of collectibles and and Beanie Babies and saying that once you go down the slippery slope of going outside of what really is defined in the statute, almost anything that people buy, like a collectible, could be a security. And the judge was particularly concerned about that because she was concerned about opening the doors to a lot more litigation and specifically mentioned class actions where these class action lawyers could seize on a ruling in the SEC's favor on this point and try to argue almost anything could be a security and and start suing companies that create and promote collectibles. So tell me what you think of the SEC argument from Patrick Costello that securities differ from purchases of collectibles like baseball cards or Beanie Babies. When they buy this token, they're investing into the network behind it. One cannot be separated from the other. Well, I really don't think that the SEC's argument is all that meritorious in that particular point, because when you look at collectibles and you look at Beanie Babies, the people and the companies that create, for instance, the Beanie Babies, you know, they're very astute in terms of releasing special edition Beanie Babies or limiting the supply or having particular promotions. So it's not just like Beanie Babies took off on their own, so to speak. A lot of thought and marketing and other things that you could consider to be, you know, kind of an enterprise, you know, were in place. So the SEC's attempt to distinguish a collectibles market from a securities market really wasn't persuasive in that instance. But I think the SEC's broader and stronger argument is that the Securities Act of 1933, even though it's old, has a lot of flexibility built into it. And when Congress passed that act, it has been able to be adopted to new types of investment 
products over the years, like real estate investment trust and complex sorts of financing instruments. And the SEC's argument is that that is exactly what this act is designed to do, and that crypto fits within that sort of category of a, of a new financial investment that, that is comfortably within the, the concept of an investment contract. So was it mentioned that if the SEC doesn't regulate crypto, who will? Yes, that came up, and that was something where the judge specifically had another concern with in terms of she categorized it as she needs to stay in her lane with respect to she's supposed to be there to apply the law and interpret its definitions. And one of Coinbase's arguments is centered around a principle called the major questions doctrine, which is a key part of administrative law which says that agencies like the SEC, which are administrative agencies, are limited and Congress cannot delegate to them questions that have major economic or political significance. Those have to be decided by Congress through debate and elections and democratic processes, not delegated to an unelected commission. So yes, that issue came up. The judge seemed to indicate some skepticism with that. She didn't feel like she would really need to get to that point. She termed it the nuclear option in the oral argument. So I think the judge has every intent to rule on the more narrow question about whether the crypto assets fall within the definition of a security under the statute or not. And do you agree with our Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst, Elliot Stein, who predicts the judge will back Coinbase and dismiss the SEC suit? Yeah, I I do think that there's a very high likelihood of that happening. And I think in in certain respects, what the judge could do is say that trading on the secondary market, like what happened on on the Coinbase platform, is not a security because people are trading among themselves and the, the blockchain companies don't get that money. They're just, you know, aftermarket purchasers that are buying and selling among themselves and still keeping those investor protections for when those tokens are initially issued, like, for instance, in an initial coin offering. You know, those could be securities because the company is getting the money from that offering. They're using it to build out a platform. They're using it to make the product more valuable. So it's a much stronger case to say that that's a security than the aftermarket trading. And I think the other really good point that Coinbase brought up was that The SEC allowed Coinbase to go public just three years ago in 2021. So Coinbase filed their their forms with the SEC, described the business model, the platform was operating, and the SEC approved the, the IPO three years ago. So how can the SEC come back three years later after approving the IPO and say, well, your business was an illegal enterprise, you know, all along going back to 2019 when you first started it, even though we approved it to be offered to the public, you know, in 2021. The question of whether digital tokens are securities has divided courts. So another Manhattan federal judge, Annalisa Torres, ruled in July that exchange sales of Ripple Labs token weren't subject to SEC jurisdiction, while Manhattan federal judge Jed Rakoff, I think he just sits a floor apart from her, that same month reached the opposite conclusion in the SEC's case against Terraform Labs. So how much influence will the decision here by Judge Polk have? Well, that's a really good point, June, because there are a lot of decisions coming out of the Manhattan federal court as, as well as other courts that are contradictory and judges taking different approaches. And the judge in the Coinbase case, whatever way she ultimately rules is going to be one more decision in that 
mix. It's not going to be a definitive answer either way. And I suspect that at some point, either the appellate courts in New York or even the Supreme Court is going to have to issue a decision on this point because there have been contradictory rulings. But ideally, as the judge is pointing out, that this is more an issue for Congress in terms of trying to pass a legislative framework for crypto that defines, you know, what people have to do, you know, how to regulate it, which agency should be responsible for it. Because right now you have this SEC, you have the CFTC, which regulates commodities and other agencies at the state level are all kind of assert jurisdiction over crypto. And it's, it's very harmful for the industry and it's hindering innovation and development because there really is not a clear regulatory framework. So, Ideally, Congress would act, but I, I don't have high hopes for that in the, this political climate. Unfortunately, I have to agree with you there, Bob. Thanks so much. That's Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. Coming up next, Elon Musk wants more Tesla stock or he's walking. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Elon Musk is leaning on Tesla's board to give him another massive stock award that would nearly double his current shares. In a series of posts on X, the Tesla chief executive says he would be, quote, uncomfortable growing Tesla to be a leader in AI and robotics without having 25% control. Enough to be influential, but not so much that I can't be overturned. And then, the not-so-veiled threat. Musk writes, unless that is the case, I would prefer to build products outside of Tesla. Musk previously held a stake of more than 20% in Tesla, but now owns around 13% of the company's stock after selling billions of dollars of shares in 2022, partly to help finance his $44 billion purchase of Twitter. Joining me is business law expert Eric Talley, a professor at Columbia Law School. So the latest, although to say what's the latest on Elon Musk is very dangerous because he's in the news all the time. But he's pressuring Tesla's board to arrange another massive stock award for him. And he wrote that unless he has roughly 25 percent voting control of Tesla, He'd prefer to build artificial intelligence and robotics products elsewhere. Is this a real threat? It's really hard to tell. And, you know, Elon Musk is in so many news stories now that they all kind of blend together and maybe they're just all part of the same narrative. First of all, I guess it's kind of interesting that uh, Elon Musk decided to take his case for a raise, I guess, not to the Tesla board, but to the <laughs> to the viewers of his 
X slash Twitter feed to essentially make his uh, case in the court of public opinion, which is kind of a bizarre thing. Now, it may well be the case that Mr. Musk has already put forward this request and has ended up not having it received as well as he would want it. But it's kind of an interesting thing to decide he's going to put it, you know, he's going to crowdsource people's opinions about whether he should get a raise or should have his ownership stake increased to 25%. Now, the guy is, you know, clearly an iconoclast who uh, has a huge following all over the place. Some of the following uh, follows him into the stock markets as well. So I think if you're sitting on the board of Tesla, you probably probably don't want, um, you know, Elon Musk becoming sour and sort of, you know, unhappy about his situation at Tesla. You know, by the same token, there's a real sense in which the types of reasons that Mr. Musk gave in his fairly long tweet, they don't really quite pass the smell test. I think, you know, sort of the, the main one that he gave was that he needs that level of control so that he has enough influence and power to help direct things at Tesla. He's only sitting at 13% now, which, by the way, is a, an amount that he brought himself down to, having shed a bunch of his Tesla shares so that he could afford his Twitter acquisition. And he doesn't feel like he has the influence he wants. And I don't really know of anyone who actually believes that. Even as a 13% <laughs> shareholder, you know, it's obvious to me that most retail investors and almost certainly that board board is hanging on every single word that Elon Musk says. So, you know, to claim that, you know, if I don't have 25%, I'm not going to have enough influence at Tesla, it just doesn't add up to me on some level. Well, he doesn't need the money, does he? I mean, he's now after being the first person to ever raise $200 billion from their net worth more than a year ago. He's now, again, the richest person in the world, worth an estimated $206.1 billion. So he doesn't need the money. Well, I guess that's one conclusion you can reach. It's important to realize that the vast majority of his wealth is on paper and takes the form of shares of Tesla, right? So if he's going to access that, he would have to sell more. And uh, that you know comes with all kinds of adverse implications, not just tax implications, but, but also you know implications about his you know waning control over the company. And so there may be a sense that, you know, if you tie all these different things together, you know, one of the things that may be worrying Mr. Musk, and maybe he's trying to think his way through is what kind of a financial strain is he going to be under over at X, which he notoriously overpaid for a year and a month ago. And so, you know, that may be part of what's going on here. It's pretty clear that, you know, we don't have a lot of visibility into the finances at X, but it looks like a lot of the uh, investors that uh, do have to, you know, periodically mark their positions to market value are now sort of reflecting that their that their investment in Twitter is uh, a fraction of what it used to be worth. The company itself is heavily leveraged. It's got a lot of debt obligations coming due, and they're going to have to meet those in an environment that's looking incredibly and progressively less friendly. So, you know, maybe part of what's going on here is, is an attempt to get a little bit more liquidity to patch up the holes in the dike over. <laughs> 
over at X and possibly even, you know, buy out some of these debt holders at a fraction of what they um, are carrying their own debt at. So these two things could be tied together. And while, yes, it's the case that he is still an incredibly wealthy person, the use of those shares to juggle other business commitments that Mr. Musk has may be, you know, critically important. And it may be important for him to get himself back up into the mid-20s in, in terms of ownership shares. All of this is perfectly fine and good to think about from Mr. Musk's perspective. I guess one worries a little bit if you're just an ordinary Tesla shareholder. Is this good news or is this bad news? You've got this charismatic CEO who's essentially now dangling a threat to walk away and take his ball with him, including a bunch of potential growth opportunities for the company that, you know, quite frankly, the valuation in Tesla in the market is part its cars and part its batteries and part its solar roofs. But I think a lot of it is prospect that it's going to be moving into a bunch of exciting new fields over the next few years. And so, you know, on some level, the statement by Mr. Musk was a shot across the bow about those growth opportunities for Tesla. And I'm, you know, I'm not so sure that as a stockholder, you'd be feeling 100% comfortable in either direction, either on the one hand, you know, he does take his ball and goes home. On the other hand, you end up giving a large fraction of the value back to Elon Musk, you know, maybe, you know, he turns things uh, once again in the strong direction of stockholders, but he clearly is attempting to exact a price in order to do so. But is this a great time to be pressuring Tesla with the car maker off to the worst start to any year it's been a public company? Yeah, how do I put this deftly? This is a terrible time to be <laughs> pressuring uh, Tesla. But, you know, if anyone could do it, possibly it is Mr. Musk. I mean, f- first and foremost, realize that we are sitting in, you know, everyone like myself who teaches corporate law has been sitting and waiting for a decision involving Mr. Musk's own compensation package yes. that was awarded to him five and a half years ago that ended up paying him almost $60 billion worth of Tesla stock. He does not take a salary. He gets paid exclusively exclusively in Tesla stock, and they have not re-upped a new compensation package for him because we don't know what the decision is going to be in the previous one in which he was sued by shareholders saying that that compensation package was outrageously large and a breach of fiduciary duties. So, you know, to the extent that we don't know how that decision is going to come out of Chancellor McCormick's chambers, suppose she comes back and she says, yeah, the shareholders have a point here. You know, the, the procedures he used to pay himself this exorbitant amount of money are more unfair. That may mean that the cash flows have to go in the reverse. He's got to give back some of this money that he's already been paid or some of the value he's already been paid or shares that he's received. So while the decision on this is waiting in the offing, it's already kind of a sketchy time to be saying, oh, let's just roll this up, reload this same package, or maybe even a richer package, when we don't even know what the legal status of the existing one was going to be. Second, one of the things that that has become clear, even at the very first month of 2024, is that the electric vehicle space is both getting crowded by new entrants and foreign competition, and, you know, sort of a kind of an inflection point about how heavily people are going to be diving into additional purchases of electric vehicles versus hybrids, versus, you know, internal combustion um, vehicles versus some combination of all of them. So the growth trajectories for the EV sector as a whole, I think, you know, people are trying to reassess what that looks like. And the fact that it's getting so crowded, that's going to make Tesla 
probably face even more of an uphill battle itself. So you've got this CEO who's saying, I want you to basically double my stake in the company or else I'm going to start directing business outside of Tesla. It's not a great look and it's not a great moment for that to happen. I, you know, I guess to play devil's advocate on it, maybe this is the moment where Tesla absolutely needs stability and they need to keep him around. And so they're willing to say yes to almost anything. And that's certainly a possibility. You know, there's another interesting question about this, June, is that if I'm a CEO of a company that is not just a car company, but it's a basically a vast technology company, part of my duties are to make sure that if there are ideas and new business prospects that fit within that company's line of business, that I don't sort of pull them out and pursue them on my own, but that I direct them into the company that I'm a fiduciary of. This is a well-known part of corporate law. It's called the Corporate Opportunities Doctrine. And you know it's a situation where if you are a CEO and you say, well, I'm just going to plan to pull business that is firmly within the line of business that this company out, well, you might be inviting yet another law So the timing is not particularly great. And even if the timing were great, you know, you would kind of think, well, maybe this is the type of situation where you want to approach the board quietly. That has clearly not been the strategy that Mr. Musk is pursuing here. So we'll see how it shakes down. You know, at the very least, it gives you and me something to talk about. Well, even those of us who do not teach corporate law are wondering what is taking the chancery court Judge McCormick so long? I mean, even if it's a complicated decision, how long has it been? Yeah, the stakes are, 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 are huge in this. This case has been hanging around for a long time. And realize that Chancellor McCormick has basically been offloading all things Musk in the state of Delaware, right? She was sitting yeah. on the Twitter acquisition deal as well. This case actually preceded that. This was a complaint that uh, one of her predecessors actually was hearing before he ended up leaving the bench. And so she ended up taking over this case. The case is involved from a corporate law perspective because it entails all kinds of crisscrossing questions of does Musk own enough shares of Tesla to actually make him a controlling shareholder? Even at the time, I think he was sitting at like 22-23% of the company, but not a majority. That's a tough question in and of itself. There's questions about what was the appropriate set of comparables to look at? Was this a reasonable compensation package when it was passed because it looked like it was so pie in the sky that none of these benchmarks were going to pay off? And then it turns out all, you know, all of them paid off, basically. So I, I think there are a lot of balls that are in the air in this one opinion. I know people who are sort of students of the Delaware Chancery Court. They're waiting on this opinion. They're going to you know, pick it apart almost immediately. So I would be inclined to give Chancellor McCormick a, a runway to get this thing out because it could end up giving rise to you know, all kinds of different uses once it is out there. And I think, you know, this recent foray may suggest that the import of her decision is even greater, right? So for all we knew, she was about to issue the opinion, and then we, we get hit with a tweet. <laughs> She's got to make sure uh, that it's going to hold water against whatever new attention-grabbing headline is out there. That having been said, most people are anticipating that we are going to see um, an opinion come out of the Chancery Court pretty soon, probably within the next month. All right. Something else to talk about. And also in one of his tweets or X's or one of his posts, he mentioned how long ago the trial was. So waiting for that as well. So now turning to another area involving Elon Musk. The Wall Street Journal had an article describing his history of recreational drug use, saying he's used LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, and psychedelic mushrooms 
often at private parties, and there's an ongoing use of ketamine. I mean, I'm not sure anyone's surprised at this, but what impact does it have? Yeah, I mean, there's this old joke in Wall Street, you know, stock price didn't move on announcement, right? Things that are not terribly surprising. And I think that was literally the case here that, you know, the stock price of Tesla was moving for other reasons, but I'm not so sure that this moved the needle itself. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think people were incredibly surprised by this. By the same token, uh, you know, I think that particularly at a company that's heading into what may be a tougher landscape, since you're not the only kid on the block in terms of electric vehicle production, you know, both world politics and the economy have facing bumpier roads ahead. You know, I think that on some level, people really do want stability out of their leaders. And for any generic um, CEO, I think this could actually spell either doom or something close to doom. It's less clear to me that that's the case with Musk, simply because I, I just don't think too many people were surprised by that. But what it does give rise to is, you know, a little bit of a sense of, well, you know, when Mr. Musk says something, is this part of a larger, just kind of erratic type of personality? And that's, I think that's a concern generally. By the same token, you know, I, I think his personality type has been one that's been, you know, not only good for Tesla, but it's been, you know, pretty good for the American economy as well. His iconoclastic style, which may be, you know, part and parcel with the rest of this, has also kind of caused him to be one of the more risk-tolerant entrepreneurs out there, which I think has been all in, regardless of what you think about him as a person, has been, you know, not a terrible thing for industry. So, you know, I, I don't know where this is going to go. It's, it's, um, it's obviously an issue that was concerning enough that it not only gave rise to a Wall Street Journal story, but a lot of other people have been, you know, trying to figure out what the implications of it are. On some level, it really just moved it up into our, our mental inbox, because I think a lot of people sort of were vaguely aware of some of this track record already. There's the possibility that shareholders could sue over this? You know, there is a, a, a possibility, I guess. There turn out to be a you know, bunch of different ways that shareholders can file a lawsuit. Sometimes they can sue because the CEO or the corporate fiduciary has done something greedy. It's possible under some circumstances shareholders can sue because the CEO or fiduciary has done something stupid <laughs> um, or something foolish or something thoughtless. It turns out, for better or worse, that is a much harder lawsuit to win. You can very easily sue someone for being too greedy, but it's much harder to sue someone for um, not thinking about what they're doing. It's possible, but it's a harder thing to do. So, you know, shareholders might sort of say, well, look, this type of behavior suggests that you're not behaving in good faith and in discharging your duties, that you're abdicating your duties, that you're basically treating this like a plaything. And there have been you know, lawsuits, many lawsuits in the past, past that have made those types of allegations. But you really have to have a pretty extreme case in order to show that. Um, and so much so that, you know, the company's worth nothing anymore. Well, if if you were to open up the Wall Street Journal today, you would not see that, that Tesla is worth nothing at this, at this point in time. So, you know, I, I think it's certainly something, a matter that may be of some concern, maybe a matter that uh, at least in part caused Mr. Musk to think, oh, boy, you know, if some of my shareholders turn against me, maybe it would be better for me to have 25% of the stock rather than 13% of the stock. So maybe there's ha something that this has to do with. But I think that the civil exposure for under, you know, sort of corporate law principles is still pretty small. That doesn't mean that illicit drug use doesn't give rise to certain types of legal obligations, but they're usually not at the hands of irate shareholders. SpaceX doesn't seem to have the problems that Tesla does. 
Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting to think about here is that while SpaceX has been in the news, they have not been in the news for bad things happening, right? As a general matter, um, most of the news that's been hitting with SpaceX, as far as I can tell, has been good and has been along the lines of enhancing its its footprint, enhancing its business operations. So, you know, I, I guess one of the issues that came up in the executive compensation lawsuit as well, this question of how do you how do you deal with a person that's got a finger in every pie and is prone to being kind of like a distracted Labrador retriever, right? Like, you know, and this was one of the arguments that Tesla made. is like, we had to pay him that much because if we didn't, he was just going to get distracted and do a bunch of other things. And, you know, maybe there's a, you know, a sense in which the tweet that he issued was, you know, sort of trying to ring up that same type of logic or that same type of reasoning. And there are things that he is engaged in that seem to be doing decently well. And SpaceX, I think, is sort of top of that list. Thanks so much, Eric. I'm sure we'll be talking again about Mr. Musk. That's Columbia Law School professor Eric Talley. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, the workplace is not the right place for heated debates on politics or world events. But how do employers keep political disagreements out of the workplace while respecting free expression? That's up next on the Bloomberg Law Show. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The workplace is not the right place for heated debates on politics or world events. But with primary season in full swing and traumatic events overseas, how do employers keep political disagreements out of the workplace while respecting free expression? Joining me is Dominique Camacho-Moran, a partner in the labor and employment practice at Farrell Fritz. Are you finding that employers are contacting you because there's a lot of political disagreements in the workplace? So I think a lot is an interesting phrase. Employers are preparing for what we expect will be a very robust window during the election cycle of debate. Those issues have candidly been popping up periodically since the pandemic. It started with issues surrounding the summer of George Floyd. It was resurrected again in the fall around the issues in Israel. So employers are managing a lot of what I would call not contentious, but robust debate in the workplace that can leave feelings hurt on any side of the conversation. And so I assume that the Israeli-Palestine issue has come up already. It absolutely has come up with employers and businesses trying to navigate a scenario where they can be compassionate to their own views and to the people who share those views, but also address the issue of if your business is not the business, then we need to make sure that we're moving forward. And we need to make sure that those conversations are not negatively distracting folks within the workplace. Before we get to what you should do, there's been a lot of talk about 
various law firms and businesses not wanting people who don't support Israel. Let's say there's a discussion and it gets heated. Does the employer have a right to fire someone whose speech he or she disagrees with? I want to be careful about getting to the ultimate question of can you fire someone for something you don't agree with? Because the answer is yes, but. Yes, but we have to make sure that we're being consistent and that we're not discriminating against a particular group based on their ethnicity or their national origin or their religion. And so while an employer does not have to tolerate a viewpoint they don't agree with, there are all of these caveats to it's important that we comply with the law regarding discrimination and all of the categories that are protected under both federal, state, and local law. And sometimes that crosses the line. Tell us what employers should or shouldn't do to avoid conflicts. Really important that employers go back to their policies and take another look. Are we making sure that we are asking people, for example, to use email appropriately and for work-related interests? One of the things that can happen is that an employee can start circulating opinion pieces about political and or other kinds of topics that divide as opposed to unite people people within the workplace. Important that the employer knows what their policy is about the use of the email system and that that's clearly articulated. The same is true for making sure that there's an understanding and perhaps explicitly that this is not the place for the conversations around religion or politics. That's an appropriate thing for an employer to decide. The key, though, is once an employer decides that that's the policy, it's consistent enforcement. It can't be we're only going to take this position when someone's talking about Donald Trump or we're only going to take this position if you're talking about Joe Biden. The need needs to be that we're going to be consistent in how we go about applying the rules. Let's say that this leads to a discussion that gets heated. What do you recommend that employers do? Employers need to train their managers and supervisors to stop those kinds of conversations before they start. In the workplace, there is rarely an elongated window of time for that kind of conversation to get truly heated. But when there is an issue, employers need to step in and have their managers and supervisors trained to say, look, we appreciate that everybody has a viewpoint, but we're trying to make widgets. And right now we need everybody focused on how to make the widgets. What other big issues are employers facing? I think the other big issue that we're facing is what about outside of workplace conduct that has the potential to negatively impact an employer? And I think from there, it really depends on the position. But those who are in leadership roles need to understand that just because their conduct is outside of the workplace doesn't mean that it doesn't negatively impact the workplace. And so there's got to be a dialogue amongst leadership that says, this is what our expectation is, and it's important that we speak with the same message. That doesn't mean people can't have differing opinions, but everybody needs to understand that when conduct becomes very public, it can impact the workplace. A lot for employers to think about. Thanks so much, Dominique. That's Dominique Camacho-Moran of Farrell Fritz. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. 
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.